Good afternoon. It's uh, Wednesday the 15th of February 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today, we've got David Scott and Debbie Evans. And David, we're going to get straight on today with some good news. The good news, the best news since 19, since 2016 when we voted for Brexit, I think. The best start to a UK column news in a long time. Nippy's gone. Nicola Sturgeon has resigned as Scotland's first minister. Uh, here we have the BBC reporting it. Uh, uh, at that point, not exactly clue when she'll actually leave. But there was a hastily arranged news conference in Edinburgh and she was standing down. Um, a source close to Ms Sturgeon told the BBC that she'd had enough. It was very, the live stream itself, David, was very Jacinda Ardern uh, up to a point. Uh, I have to say she didn't, she wasn't backing down too much. She said that uh, her, the, 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 the problem was that, that really the two years of COVID policy, which was really her height, the height of her powers uh, was those two years. Uh, this had all caught up with her because it was heavy pressure. Uh, and, but the other problem was that the, the uh, yeah, the other problem was that the SNP uh, conference was coming up uh, in a couple of weeks and the, her leadership is so powerful and so strong that she was concerned that members of the SNP wouldn't have the uh, ability or the, the uh, uh, self uh, capability to, to make their own decisions and whatever decisions she made about what the future policies of the SNP should be, that that would override everybody else in the SNP and it would be really tricky for them. So it was time for her to go. It was, it was quite an amazing uh, press conference. So let me see if I understand this. She's going because she's just too good. That's correct. Uh, and she's going because uh, COVID policy was such a success and it's nothing to do with the whole Schrodinger's rapist problem where she can't decide if the male rapist is in fact a woman because she doesn't have enough information. That That's nothing to do with it. The fact that people are leaving the SNP in droves the, the fact that they're joining, goodness sake, Alex Salmond, Sleepy Cuddle Salmond is actually benefiting from this politically and the people are just closing the light on the way out of the SNP. None of that, none of that happened. Did I, did I dream all of that? Well, Gosh, uh, it seemed real. Well, well, I mean, I have to admit, I, could, I wasn't able to watch all of it because there's only a limit. There's a limit to how much I can take of this stuff. But uh, I certainly didn't hear any mention of, of that particular issue. But anyway, you have a, you have a little uh, video clip of, of people's reaction. Well, is it, I was looking for something on the internet. It's actually a few days ago. I did anticipate that the end was near for Nicola. And uh, I went on and said, well, when she goes, how will I feel? I well, absolutely joyful. And I thought, well, I'll go on the internet and I'll find a little clip, just a few seconds that illustrates this. And actually, Mike, it's some of your countrymen. It's some, it's some nice Ulster Scots. Um, singing Sweet Caroline at a football match. And I thought this rather summed up how I feel today. So there we so go. That 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 covers it for me. Um, it's it's a moment that's so good. 
And um, I know, I know I said that however bad your political leaders, the next one always makes you feel nostalgic for the one you've lost. And I know I said that even Liz Truss proved this to be true, but, well, Rishi did. Um, I don't think, I think this is going to be the test case. This is going to be the case that really, that really tests that rule because she's done so much harm to Scotland. She's, she's been involved in it becoming uh, a different sort of place, divide, divisive, divided, bitter. She's brought so much jealousy and animosity and narrowness and failure uh, to the country, I can't imagine ever feeling much different about this day than I do right now. Okay, thank you. Now let's uh, move on to more serious matters. Then. And uh, well, here's uh, the mail, and there are their headline here is uh, Belgian footballer Arnie Spiel dies while playing for Winkelsport B after the goalkeeper collapsed on the pitch just seconds after saving a penalty. Uh, so uh, let's have a look. There he, there he is. Uh, another sudden death amongst amongst a young sports person. Uh, well, the reason I wanted to, to mention this uh, was this. Uh, the government has now responded to the petition uh, calling for the UK, for the government to investigate UK access deaths not related to COVID. And the petition said on the week ending the 20th of October, the ONS reported excess deaths were 12.5% above the five-year average with only 717 deaths out of 12,861 involving COVID. Uh, this alarming excess death percentage needs investigating by the government and the root cause laid up in a public report, laid out in a public report. Uh, so let's see what the government uh, responded. A combination of factors has contributed to the number of excess deaths. Uh, the government is taking steps to address this and will announce further detail in the forthcoming major conditions strategy. Uh, OHID analysis shows that in England, for the week ending 20th of October, the leading causes of death contributing to the excess uh, were deaths involving cardiovascular diseases, uh, the highest levels of excess mortality were deaths involving heart failure and uh, ischemic heart diseases, deaths involving acute respiratory infections were 16% higher than expected, deaths involving cancer, Parkinson's disease, other respiratory diseases and dementia and Alzheimer's were lower than expected. Uh, they went on to say OHID estimates, estimates show that for deaths registered in England during the whole of 2022, deaths involving four conditions were all over 10% higher than expected. Heart failure, which was 15% higher, cirrhosis and other liver diseases, 14% higher, diabetes, 12% higher, and ischemic uh, heart diseases, 11% higher. So, uh, Debbie, maybe I could uh, welcome you to the program and, and say, ask for your, your thoughts on this because uh, heart disease, of all kinds of heart disease, much higher than normal. Uh, people dropping dead on football pitches in increasing numbers, but uh, still there's nothing to be concerned about. No, nothing to be concerned about at all. And, you know, a lot of people might remember that we interviewed Matt Letissier and he spoke specifically uh, about uh, footballers and people, sportsmen and athletes that were collapsing and dying. He said he'd never in his whole career had, had won. And now all of these, I've also spoken at length to Fran Adamson, who's an advanced cardiac um, practitioner nurse or was before she left the NHS. And she says that she remembers in her training 
that a consultant said to her, there's a 47-year-old man on the ward. Please take notice of this because this is a very young patient and very, very unusual. So clearly, um, everything's going to be, of course, blamed on everything else. COVID itself, long COVID, lockups indeed. But never, ever will they look or want to look at the serious adverse reactions from the COVID-19 vaccine. So, I mean, we are all saying it and we can all see it. And clearly the government are taking no notice because they don't want to. Indeed. Uh, David, let's move on then to uh, 15 minute cities or 20 minute neighbourhoods in this case. Well, yes, the two, the two phrases are somewhat identical, somewhat synonymous. Um, the one that's running in Scotland is 20-minute neighbourhoods, and it's everywhere. So here we see an organisation uh, called Climate Change, Scotland's centre of expertise connecting climate change research and policy. They're one of the leading voices in this. Uh, they've done a report uh, on the 20-minute neighbourhoods in a Scottish context. Executive summary says the programme for government 2020 commits the Scottish government to working with local governments and other partners to take forward ambitions for 20-minute neighbourhoods, places that are designed so residents have the ability to meet the vast majority of their day-to-day -day needs within a 20-minute walk, 800 metres of their home, through access to safe walking, cycling routes, or by public transport. So that's what it's about. Um, the report goes into more detail. Um, so the main findings are, uh, Scotland has the opportunity to be a capitalised global leader in delivering this concept. It's always about being a global leader. We're, 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 we're all vying to be the most compliant with the international policy. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Every neighbourhood, so there can be no exception, so everyone must, com must comply, uh, should be facilitated, a particular pet hate of mine, that word, um, to be a 20-minute neighbourhood. Communities should be capitalised, empowered to make changes um, only in the appropriate direction because it's centrally controlled. You know, every neighbourhood must do this. This concept should enable people to travel actively in support of their health. No more cars for you. And a 20-minute neighbourhood concept uh, should be the ambition that pulls together uh, all other relevant policies. So this is the key concept. This is going to change society. This is how we're going to do it. And it uses five dimensions to capture, this. they've done a, a study, it uses five dimensions to capture the features and infrastructure and quality of services that make up the 20-minute neighbourhood. Stewardship, civic movement, resources and spaces. And uh, there's, no any, there's not any clear definition of these things. Um, and there's a lot of overlap, as is always the case. When we get to recommendations, they're going to use the fourth national planning framework um, to rationalise and coordinate the policy landscape to support the delivery of the concept. So it's going to be imposed through the planning framework, through planning law, which has always been a vehicle by which our, uh, our rights and freedoms have been infringed. Um, it's a kind of stealthy uh, vehicle. Um, there's going to be a greater emphasis on reducing private car journeys. So we're going to continue the war on the car. Um, and the concept of framework and funding will be designed at a national level. So it's going to be centrally controlled. Now, there's a few interesting diagrams in this report. Uh, the next one we have here shows the main things are, well, we've got quality of services and experience, whatever that means, features and infrastructure, and, oh, engagement and behaviour change. 
well, we're going to have behavior change. There's a surprise um, because our behavior is the problem. Um, with some more, more diagrams here, it's interesting to note that the outcomes of this are going to be not improved health, no, decreased health inequalities. A very interesting concept. Why would they not say improved health? They uh, does that mean, sorry, David, does, does decreased health inequalities mean everybody gets to die at the same rate? Yes, yes. Equal dying, equal rights for dying and, and being ill. You've got to be ill at the same rate. You can't be well, you, know, you can't be well compared to other people. That would be unfair. Improved local economy. The key word there is local, right? Not, we're not going to improve the economy overall. Improved local economy. Improved livability. More on that term later. And of course, climate action, because this is all about global warming. Um, we've also got place and well-being outcomes. Well-being famously is the, is the term they can't define. Broadly means happiness, but no one really knows. Um, and the expert in well-being famously said, uh, well-being is not a beach you can lie on. So I hope that clarifies things for you. Um, my own local authority, Perth and Kinross, uh, they're entirely on board with this, of course, enthusiastically backing it. And they, they're talking about the values or the golden thread through all their democratic governance plans. Such highfalutin language didn't used to be associated with local authorities or the council, as they were known. But now they're talking about democratic governance plans. And the, the, the golden thread is sustainability and fairness. Two words from the Marxist lexicon uh, that don't mean what you think. More on that in extra time, I suspect. Um, the people pushing this and leading this in Scotland include uh, Anne um, um, uh, Bergseng, who is a Norwegian lady, and she works for the Edinburgh Climate Change Institute. Uh, she's been a, an eco-activist for oh, at least a decade, um, and she's leading this charge in Scotland. So it's climate change, which is, of course, based on a lie, that is the justification for doing this at all. But it's been, it's been kind of overlapped with, well, you're going to be happier. You will own nothing and be happy, kind of uh, being developed at a local level here. So I was looking into the background of this. Where did the 20-minute neighbourhood concept come from? And lo and behold, Portland, Oregon. There's a surprise. Portland, Oregon was, its, was, was ground zero for this concept. So here we have Chaim Simon, um, a thesis from uh, University of Washington um, uh, uh, last year. And he's a thesis for his Master of Urban Planning. So he's been looking into this 20-minute um, neighborhood. And he writes, the city of Portland, Oregon, set a goal for 90% of its residents to live within a 20-minute neighborhood back in 2009 part of a, a broader effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and mitigate climate change. So this is nothing to do with people. This is to do with the global warming myth and the uh, use of essentially fraudulent scientific predictions or fraudulent, uh, fraudulent um, political prescriptions coming from at least dodgy science or poorly understood science. Um, to promote changes in society, changes in society that are driven from political, from a political basis, nothing actually to do with the climate. So it's all based on this core deception. Um, 
So he writes, 20-minute neighbourhoods and similar schemes, such as 15-minute city, um, follow a century-long tradition of planning cities that are accessible for walking. And he talks about Clarence Perry, a, a, a planner who wrote in the 1920s um, about uh, community centre development. And he writes, at the same time he's publishing his ideas, Le Corbusier created a vision of a section city that prioritised movement by car between zones. Now, which idea triumphed? Well, it was Le Corbusier, right? The planning law in this country and in the United States since the 1930s have been zoning us in so that you live in one area, you work in a different one, the two don't mix, and you commute by car. That was their policy. They pushed this for a, the best part of a century, and the same people who created this are now turning around saying, this was a terrible mistake. We don't want to be doing that. That's all wrong. You need to listen to us. Um, in the 1990s, the, the PhD, the thesis continues, in the 1990s, an alternative design was outlined by the Congress of New Urbanism. New urbanism favours cities that are mixed-use, dense, and with a range of housing types, right? Mixed-use, dense, with a range of housing types. That describes how cities used to be before Le Corbusier. So new urbanism is, in fact, old urbanism. I hope you're following this. Uh, and we then get to livability. We mentioned livability as part of the goals in Scotland. We're going to increase livability. Excellent. What does livability mean? Livability, as used by urban planners, is without a specific definition. There is no clear understanding of what the term livable means. So there we go, once again, they're defining things that sound plausible, but have no substance. So it all started in Portland, 2009. So I thought, how's it going? How's it going in Portland? So we've got the Seattle Times here. Portland, repelling its current citizens, is Seattle's cautionary tale. Portland has switched from attracting new arrivals to repelling its current citizens, one news outlet wrote in the past week. In Portland, many liberals are dodging stray bullets, losing catalytic converters to thieves and sidestepping tents. Then they open their tax bills. Quote, everybody hates Portland. Head headlined a harsh roundup, which quoted local congressmen saying, Portland is broken. Um, and this is uh, this came from the Williamette Week, uh, from the Williamette Valley in Oregon. Um, Portland is losing some of its biggest fans, and it's basically saying a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. So that's how it's going in Portland. They were first, and they've seen uh, a huge catastrophic failure in creating communities and all the things that this is talking about. And they were doing it not for people, they were doing it for CO2 and the global warming myth. Um, so it shows that when cultural Marxists take control and they get to drive things forward uh, without being questioned, without being held to account, the destination can often be not as advertised. Yes, okay, thank you, David. Now, uh, Debbie, let's uh, move on to the uh, implications for health of the 15-minute uh, city, 20-minute neighbourhood policy. 
Yeah, well, um, I was very interested, obviously, in, in knowing what the impact was going to be with regards to health. And I found a few articles, one um, from Social Market Foundation, well, a couple of those, the ones in the middle, Health on the High Street, and creating new health hubs for high streets after the pandemic. Um, and also on the right, you can see that one that's been uh, the briefing was based on the Chatham House rule. So clearly there's a big agenda. So I've got a little, I've got a couple of little videos. Um, the first video is about 15 minute cities and you'll see the mention of health, but just have a look at this little bit of video. Before the recent lockdowns around the world, we led hectic lives with long commutes and not enough time to spend with our families and friends. Traffic polluted our air and smog blanketed our skylines. What if it could be different? What if we could create a new normal where we reclaim our time, our health and well-being and our communities? This is the idea behind the 15-minute city, a growing movement to make our lives in cities more convenient, less stressful and more sustainable. A 15-minute city is one where everything we need is close to home, where communities are safe and inclusive, where the air is clean. A 15-minute city is one where it's easy to get goods and services. Fresh groceries, health care, and other amenities are all just a short trip away. A 15-minute city is one where everyone has a place. A 15-minute city has affordable, accessible, and adaptable housing for households of all sizes and ages. A 15-minute city means that you can work close to home or work remotely more often. And we all play a role in our neighborhood. What if we don't go back to life as it was? What if we already have the power to change how we live? Together, we can reimagine and create the future we want. One that is cleaner, safer, healthier, and more inclusive, and gives us back valuable time to enjoy the little things. So that was from C40 Cities, and I'm sure uh, I don't think uh, we're going to be going back to the old normal anytime soon. So how does that actually impact us on the high street? You know, you and me, how are our high streets going to be redesigned? Um, and the NHS is definitely coming to the high street. So have a look at this next little bit of video, which will tell you what you can expect on your high street very soon. High streets across the country have been in a gradual stage of decline, with many high street retailers closing stores and leaving behind large, empty premises, resulting in a reduction of footfall for neighbouring businesses, leading to a further decline and an unwanted social outcome. Health on the High Street offers NHS trusts an operating lease of fully fitted, fully compliant, multi-purpose clinical spaces in high street locations throughout the UK. This very simple solution solves two high-profile social and economical issues, helping to alleviate hospital pressures and waiting times while bringing footfall and life back to the high street. Health on the High Street helps increase footfall to high street locations, regenerating communities and retail establishments. 
It removes infrastructure constraints and allows the main hospital site to increase capacity. It provides significant cost saving and reduces waste compared to many new build projects. It reduces traffic and limits infection risks at the main hospital site. Locations are often more accessible with readily available parking and public transport. To find out more about our Health on the High Street solutions, contact our team today. So there you go. And, and what we're seeing now is hospitals are going to be, uh, it, it's going to be pretty much an adventure or a privilege, if you like, if you want to call it a privilege. I personally don't want to go to a hospital anytime soon, but it's going to be a very planned procedure. So what we're going to find on our high streets are hubs and there are going to be hubs popping up absolutely everywhere. These are the family hubs that are that are popping up now. I've been looking very closely at family hubs and they literally incorporate everything. They also incorporate something else which we'll come on to on another uh, on another news which is the first 1000 days of life which is is probably as dark as it does sound um but we will come on to that but these family hubs are going to be rolling rolling out all over your high street likewise um your shopping centers and even in newcastle we've got the government has now confirmed plans for a 20 million pound nhs scan and test hub in metro center and it says it will host one of the 19 new community diagnostic centers designed to offer patients a one-stop shop for medical scans and tests in the community. So you can see they don't want you going anywhere at all. They want you to stay within your high street. And indeed, Rishi Sunak has um, already announced now uh, surgical hubs are coming, £33.5 million for surgical hub space. Um, you've got super hubs opening. I mean, hubs for everything. There'll be literally hubs for a birthing hub, urgent care hubs, you name it, they're going to be popping up everywhere. So I just wanted to put into some context how the high street is changing and what you can expect to see on it very soon. And you'll be going down to the high street to get a scan. You'll be going down to the high street to get a blood test. You won't be popping in for the shop to the shops and having a cup of coffee. And if you do have a cup of coffee, there'll be a well-being hub to advise you how much caffeine you're allowed. So that's the kind of big brother that we're looking at within our own high streets. So that was going to be my next question, Debbie, because uh, there is a well-being hub being built uh, in Plymouth City Centre at yeah. the moment. Uh, th there was some discussion about whether it would actually go ahead, but it is going to go ahead now. So what is the purpose of a well-being hub? Well, I think as David said uh, previously, well-being seems to be the new terminology for happiness. So maybe it's going to be renamed Happiness Hub, but obviously this is going to be looking at mental health. Um, and so we're going to be bringing mental health into the high street as well. Everything's going to be brought into the high street. That's why all these department stores that have closed down, they're going to be turned into NHS hubs as well, probably surgical hubs. Although we did mention um, a few newses ago how Porter Cabin are uh, erecting these, these kind of container units in hospital car parks. There'll be hubs everywhere, Hub Central. David. I just a couple of comments on this. I was looking at when it started, August 2020. Uh, leaders from NHS, local government, community businesses, and a range of invited experts, we need the experts, attended a high-level roundtable event to discuss how we might embed health at the heart of our place. 
um, use of architectural language there again. Um, and the name for this um, process is the NHS Reset Campaign. Uh, interesting word, that. Uh, yes, indeed. Okay, uh, if you like what the UK Column is doing, you would like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, you'd be very welcome as a member and your support very much needed and appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share material you find on the various platforms. Uh, and speaking of sharing, it, we'd just like to remind everybody, if you're going to share, if you're sharing material online, which hasn't necessarily come from the uh, UK column about a particular topic, do please search the UK column website uh, to see if we've covered the same topic in the past and you could maybe share that as well. That would be fantastic. Uh, and Debbie, uh, a quick advertisement for your latest blog. Oh, yes, thank you. Um, yes, please do check into my blog. I've just popped a, a few, those are just a few of the topics that are on this week's blog. Um, so please do go and have a look because there's more stories in there than I can cover on the news. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Debbie. Okay, let's move on then to, um, well, NATO Defence Ministers meeting happening yesterday and today. Uh, so here we are. Uh, this is what it looks like. There they all are, very happy. Let's have a quick look at what Jens Stoltenberg uh, had to say yesterday morning. Good morning. The NATO defense ministers will uh, meet at a critical time for our security. Next week, we mark uh, uh, the, one, the first year of uh, uh, the terrible war in Ukraine, the uh, full-fledged invasion by Russia against uh, Ukraine. And we see uh, no signs that uh, President Putin uh, is preparing for peace. Uh, what we see is the opposite. Uh, he is preparing for more war, for new offensives and uh, new attacks. So it makes it just even more important that uh, NATO allies and partners um, uh, provide more support uh, to Ukraine. And we will meet uh, later on today in the US-led uh, contact group uh, for uh, Ukraine and address the urgent needs for uh, increased support to Ukraine. Not least the need to provide more ammunition and also how to ramp up uh, production uh, and strengthen our defense industry to be able to uh, provide uh, the necessary ammunition to Ukraine and also to replenish our own uh, stocks. Allies will also uh, start to discuss uh, the new defense investment pledge, uh, how to ensure that we uh, continue to invest more in defense and, uh, and also address uh, um, uh, the uh, protection of critical infrastructure, um, uh, in particular uh, undersea infrastructure, offshore infrastructure. So, so David, I see you wetting yourself there. I, I find that particularly in light of the Seymour Hirsch article, uh, I found it particularly interesting that Jens Stoltenberg mentioned undersea infrastructure uh, with a straight face. Uh, but, I don't, well, tell me your thoughts. <laughs> Oh dear! I mean, it's 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 some sort of brass neck award. He he actually went there, and as you said, with a straight face. Yeah, we must protect our undersea infrastructure. I wonder why that came up. Yeah, can't imagine. And, uh, yeah, I would simply point everyone to the Seymour House piece, which which basically says that un, unnamed, but uh, he's convinced credible sources have pointed out to him this was essentially a United States military US Navy operation with some help from the Norwegians. So that makes it a NATO operation. 
and it uh, took out the Russian infrastructure, and that would be, correct me if I'm wrong, an act of war. Uh, yes, it would. Uh, now, I'm just going to uh, challenge you a little bit on the statement that that would make it a NATO uh, exercise. I'll explain what I mean by that in one second. But before we do, let's just have a look at a couple of the family photos, a couple of the snaps from the, from the uh, event which, uh, from yesterday, which uh, Ben Wallace was very keen for everybody to see. And so was the Minister of Defence. Um, and uh, so here they are, deep in discussions, uh, perhaps talking about undersea uh, infrastructure there. Um, but, uh, you know, the feature, the main feature of this event has been uh, that the, an acknowledgement that you heard from Jens Stoltenberg there, uh, that we have basically run out of ammunition. We've got to start ramping up the military industrial co complex once again to try to uh, replenish uh, whatever it is that we've handed over already and to commit to handing over more and more uh, ammunition and so on. But anyway, in the meantime, uh, well, NATO was very pleased to tell us uh, that F-35s have carried out their first A-scramble to intercept Russian Su-27s and an IL-20 flying close to NATO airspace. Now, some of the coverage of this that I, that I saw was claiming that the uh, Russian aircraft were flying in Polish airspace, which of course was complete nonsense. Uh, but, uh, and certainly NATO wasn't claiming that. Um, so if we put that one back on screen, they say, supported by Eurofighters, they shadowed the aircraft who were posing a danger to other air users by ignoring international air safety rules. The, even that's complete nonsense. But anyway, here, here's my point. You're, you're saying, uh, you know, US plus Norwegian help equals NATO. Well, does it? Because uh, just look at this, for example, NATO pointing out that Denmark and Sweden have joined the European Sky Shield Initiative coordinated by Germany. Now, this is a missile and air defense uh, system. Uh, the, initi the initiative aims to strengthen NATO's integrated air and missile, de missile defense by facilitating multinational acquisition and integration of air defense capabilities. And although it, it's, the, the point here is, David, uh, we've got NATO expansionism going on, but of course, countries haven't been waiting, and the UK is, has very much been a hub for this over the years. Countries haven't been waiting for full NATO membership in order to join various uh, of the programs and schemes that, that operate either within or partly within, sometimes completely out of NATO. So multi, many bilateral and multilateral uh, defense agreements have been set up, with, uh, set up over the last uh, decade or so, um, which, which certainly you could label NATO, but aren't actually officially NATO. Well, this is, this is the case. We've got the Joint Expeditionary Force, right, which is, which is kind of NATO. Kind of, without the Americans, uh, but with the Swedes. Um, we've got endless numbers of, of, of cross-border agreements. And here we see the, the Swedes and the Finns still not part of NATO, but involved in the process, which is strengthening NATO air defence. There are no clear lines um, where, the, where the Western NATO, US um, uh, uh, authority is, is paramount then the, the countries are reacting, are engaging in, in military development, in policy development, in, in military industrial complex developments that suit the NATO agenda. Whether or not they're formally in or out of the alliance seems to be entirely secondary. Hence, Ukraine is uh, boasting that they are de facto members of NATO even though they're not. And, and doing so with some degree of credibility because they're getting a very substantial um, uh, 
a portion of the total benefits of membership without formally signing on the dotted line. And the grey area between uh, membership and non-membership means that other actors, for example, Russia, will be less sure how people will respond. They'll be less sure where the lines are, where the lines that, that shouldn't be crossed are, and there's more risk of things escalating in unpredictable ways. Uh, indeed. Now, just before we came on air, so I don't have a graphic to show for this uh, announcement that came out from today's uh, Defence Minister's meeting, uh, that Ukraine is going to receive capabilities worth millions, including tank spares. For what tanks? That's not clear. Uh, uncrewed air systems, electronic warfare and air defence uh, from the first package of multi-million pound funding from the International Fund for Ukraine. So this is the first equipment package uh, it's been agreed by the UK, Netherlands, Norway, Sweden and Denmark. And these partners, along with Iceland and Lithuania, have contributed a collective total of more than £520 million to the fund so far, uh, with an expected uh, value of more than £200 million. The first package will include vital capabilities in the form of artillery ammunition, maritime intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, uh, spare parts for equipment, including Ukraine's current tanks. Uh, David, I wasn't aware that Ukraine's current tanks were manufactured in the West. Maybe I'm wrong about this. I thought they were Russian tanks uh, that uh, at least had come from, from Russia in the first place. So I'm a little surprised that we're providing spares for them. But, uh, but we have the benefit of, of Eastern expansion in NATO. Many, many NATO countries are uh, former Warsaw Pact countries and are equipped with or have within their inventories a great deal of Russian, Russian equipment. So we have the ability to uh, supply all of this uh, to the Ukraine and backfill with some nice, you know, new uh, American produced equipment or British produced equipment to the benefit of General Electric et, et al, um, perhaps. And uh, this will upgrade the ability of these countries to integrate with the rest of NATO. It will upgrade the manufacturing capability. In terms of, of building up the West to a point where it's ready for war, this seems to be an absolutely ideal scenario. It's the war's contained, someone else is doing the bleeding, but we are getting all of the benefits of, uh, of, of it accelerating our ability to manufacture weapons, of sorting out all of the supply chain problems, of ramping up the, 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 the entire military industrial complex without any of the unfortunate bombing and dying that often goes with it. Yeah, and in the meantime, uh, you know, putting huge pressure on our own populations through the cost of living and so on. But now, uh, I just want to uh, uh, mention this little clip from Nick Ferrari. Ben Wallace uh, was speaking to him this morning. Let's just have a quick listen to this. You think through 2024, Secretary of State, you see this going through the whole of this 12-month period. Well, I think I think I think my point is uh, it would be wrong to sort of say troops home by Christmas. I think you know the lessons of conflict is never say things like that. Uh, secondly, we are up against a, a president of Russia who has no regard for his own citizens. You know, uh, about two weeks ago, the American assessment was 188,000 dead or injured Russian soldiers so far, uh, and uh, we've seen reports that over last week. Almost a whole brigade, uh, which was attacking Volodar, uh, a small mining town in the east uh, of uh, Ukraine, a whole Russian brigade was effectively annihilated or destroyed. They lost nearly a thousand or over a thousand people in two days. 
So it's unpredictable when you have a president and a, a, a Russian general staff that defies reality or ignores reality and simply doesn't care how many people they're killing off their own, let alone off the people they're trying to oppress. Yes, I think you probably want to comment on that because that was quite a staggering ending to that little quote. It's, it's, <clears throat> ben Wallace has a sense of unreality about him, right? Because what he's saying is that, that, that Putin has no, no regard for the Russian people. Well, I I'm, I'm, would have to say, where's the evidence for that? He is engaged in a war and people are dying. This is true. But other nations, including ours, many times have engaged in wars, often with the support of the people, because they felt it was existential, that they were fighting for something worth fighting for. When we resisted Napoleon or the Kaiser or Hitler, then there was always a view that what we were defending, our little island, was worth defending. Now, um, Ben Wallace seems to be assuming that, that neither Putin nor the Russians can have this viewpoint, that this is not open to them, which seems fanciful. And also, he's playing into this madman Putin line. Um, and I just don't buy that. I think that's um, folly. And to, to view people in ways which are unreal hardly suggests that the decision-making that Ben Wallace and his team are going to be engaged in will be rational and well-founded and clearly thought through if they're basing their thinking on on such an unreal um, narrative. Indeed. Okay, let's move uh, to the United States and, and uh, the derailment of, uh, well, a train can, carrying toxic chemicals. Well, we don't really know, or do we know yet, what, the, what it was carrying? Well, to, in part we do, although it seems to be less than fully clear. This is a New York Times reporting. Toxic fumes released <clears throat> from a burning train that de hit, derailed in Ohio. Um, so the report that 9pm, 9, 9 February the 3rd, Friday, February the 3rd, a train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, a village of about 4,700 residents, and not far from Pittsburgh. 150 cars were en route, um, uh, and uh, 38 cars derailed in a fire ensued, which damaged another 12. Fearing an explosion, the authorities performed a controlled release of toxic materials from five train car tankers on February the 6th. So the, the thing was still an emergency situation three days later. These contents were diverted into a trench and burned off. In the New York Times of uh, quotes uh, Governor uh, Mike DeWine of Ohio, who said, we are ordering you to leave at a news conference. This is a matter of life and death. He added there was a grave danger of inhaling fumes from chemicals produced by the release, which authorities identified as phosgene, that's mustard gas, and hydrogen chloride. In high concentrations, both chemicals can cause severe and life-threatening respiratory issues. Um, so... This is this has not got much play in the press. This is a huge environmental catastrophe, and you think in these environmentally sensitive times, this would have got a lot of concentration, but it hasn't really seemed to have received this. Um, the Hill talks about five lingering questions, not urgent questions, not questions that demand a, 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 a you know major political response, but lingering questions over the toxic um, spill. 
one of which is what was on the train and what got out. Um, and they, they expand on this. It's faced with a risk, risk of an explosion. Emergency responders diverted the leaking vinyl chloride into a trench and burned it off, converting it into phosgene gas used as a lethal chemical weapon in World War I. Um, and uh, this, this prompted the evacuation. Uh, the Hill also asks, will it happen again? 4.5 million tons of toxic, toxic chemicals are transported through US communities every year by rail. 12,000 trains carrying hazardous materials across the towns and cities each day. A Palestine wreck is the tip of an iceberg and a red flag, said Ron Kamenkow, a former Norfolk Southern freight engineer and secretary for the Railroad Workers United. He told The Guardian, if something is not done, then it's going to get worse. The next derailment could be cataclysmic. And given what's happened here, that doesn't seem too much of a stretch. There's a lot of discussion here about whether there's not enough regulation, um, of whether I, I, I suspect unionisation and demarcation is an issue. Economics is, called, is obviously a driver. There doesn't seem to be a culture of safety, and there seems to be extensive concerns over shortcuts, problems with the rolling stock, problems with the track, problems with the basic infrastructure that's causing an increased number of derailments and increased number of accidents. And hence, this, this warning from a union official seems to be entirely credible. The next one could be much worse. Yes, indeed. Okay, let's move on then to Israel. Okay, there have been many, many things happening in Israel. And here we see 100,000 Israelis gathering in Jerusalem to protest the judicial overhaul uh, amidst a mass strike. So there are, there are major, major eruptions, and we'll get to just how serious this is becoming. Um, but first, let's go back to 2020. We, we see here Yer Netanyahu, son, son of Bibi Netanyahu, um, he tweets to my international followers, here's a great explanation about the show trial that starts today in Israel. And he quotes Mark Levine talking about today in Israel marks one last effort by the left in Israel to remove and destroy Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The Supreme Court in Israel is extremely liberal and hostile to Netanyahu. So we've got a conflict between... Um, the democratically elected leader, whatever you think that means or signifies, but he was a democratically elected leader, and the court system, um, which is meant to provide a limitation, a restriction on the scope for a democratically elected leader to change the country, some sort of check, some sort of balance. Um, and there's a war between the two going on back in 2020. This war then developed, and we see from uh, 2022, the Times of Israel reports the result of the election, Likud voters just handed Netanyahu a mandate to remake the judicial system. So essentially we've got a, a, a challenge here, who runs the country? Is it the courts? Is it the parliament? Now, um, Harris uh, is reporting here, why are hundreds of thousands of Israelis protesting? And does Netanyahu care? So the protests, that, uh, what are they about? They write that Israel's new government, the most religious and far right in the country's history, is pushing through the Knesset a plan to significantly change the balance of power between the three branches of government. The legislation gives the Prime Minister 
uh, and his or her government via the legislature they, they control the power to override Supreme Court decisions. It also limits the court's ability to strike down legislation that infringes on human and civil rights while giving the government complete control over judicial appointments. So this is one branch of the government very much um, looking to dominate another as part of this ongoing struggle between left and right through the organs of the state. Harris continues, the plan has aroused strong opposition because it gives almost absolute power to the government, removing the checks and balances that have safeguarded Israel's democracy for decades. And it comments that there's no written constitution in Israel and um, this, is, this is part of the issue, there's no, there's no clarity on this issue. Uh, the plan has been criticised by the entire legal establishment, uh, the Attorney General, the Supreme Court Chief and dozens of former justices calling it a threat to Israeli democracy. It has drawn unusual warnings from Israel's allies abroad. Um, so what we have here is a conflict, a fight over who controls Leviathan, right, between the political left and the political right, political left and right in Israel being defined almost wholly by the interaction with the Palestinian Arab population. Um, the left wish to, generally speaking, to reach an agreement, a settlement, some sort of negotiated peace, um, and the right viewing, um, essentially, the, the Arabs is, is not capable of reaching a peace and needing to be essentially expelled or dominated militarily, and they're interested in, 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 in might and control and they cite safety and security as a justification for this. So that's the, the, the point I'm making is the left-right split in Israel is not primarily about economics, it's not primarily about tax, it's primarily about um, Arab-Israeli uh, relations. So back to Haaretz, um, to give you an idea of how splintered Israeli society is and how severe this particular conflict is starting to look, uh, Haaretz has got an opinion piece here. In Israel, a civil war is no longer unthinkable. Uh, the Netanyahu government bulldozes through its judicial legislation. Talk amongst Israelis has turned to visceral fear and intransigence. Both sides feel this is the moment they win or lose their country. Uh, and the author here writes, over the last few days I've found myself in conversations I never imagined I'd have since the... Since these are conversations with Israelis, everything is couched in semi-humorous tones, but the topic is deadly serious. In various ways, the various ways a civil war might suddenly break out and who would win? If the balloon goes up and civil war begins between supporters of Netanyahu's government and loyalists of the Supreme Court and the judiciary, will law enforcement, the security agencies and the military take sides? And if so, which? And he says that the, just thinking about this makes him sick. He said, it sounds almost crazy to engage in such speculation in a 75-year-old country, but there hasn't been anything close to a hint of a military coup. There hasn't been anything close to a hint of a military coup. Meanwhile, the conscription-based Israel Defence Forces, still widely regarded as a meritocratic people's army, uh, Vanessa Bailey would love that one, um, uh, but people are wondering, if push comes to shove, whom will this or that unit remain loyal to? So... Uh, he concludes uh, pointing out that only four weeks ago he thought this was nonsense and he didn't think there was any prospect of a civil war. Now he's changing his mind. It gives you an indication how quickly things are moving. He says uh, the Jewish uh, People Policy Institute, a sleepy quasi-governmental think tank, uh, 
has started to campaign on this. The Institute's president, uh, Mr Stern, explained to me that he was acting well within the Institute's mandate as the group's mission is to bolster cohesion in Israel amongst diaspora Jews and between Israel and the diaspora. Um, he's on a mission to prevent Israeli society from breaking down. So this is what we're talking about, the breakdown of the entire society. Um, and uh, he, he continues here, he says, on one side, um, the strong judiciary has become a symbol for a, a relatively liberal and secular Israel. The feeling is mirrored on the other side. Many people in the religious Zionist community have been carrying around similar trauma for 17 and a half years since the disengagement from Gaza. Uh, they considered the uprooting of communities an unforgivable act by an uncaring establishment. And now is the time to make sure it never happens again. Amongst the ultra-Orthodox, there's a feeling that the current government, which to them symbolises true Jewish spirit, is the um, historic uh, denouncement of the secular fake Jewishness whose downfall was not was always inevitable. I think in balance, more Israelis are still have a greater interest in somehow keeping the ship afloat together, but I'm a lot less certain than I was four weeks ago. So this is an issue that we have talked about in the past. Israeli society, Jewish Israeli society, before you even get to the Arab view of it, um, which is obviously a, 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 a fundamental divide in viewpoints, but in Jewish Israeli society, the, the society is hopelessly split between the secular and the religious, between the conservative and the and the liberal. Um, it's by no means united to the point that we're now seriously having talks in major national newspapers in Israel about the prospects of civil war and which side, which army units might be on if such a war broke out. Uh, okay, but uh, David, uh, you know, at the risk of being accused of being anti-Semitic, uh, I just want to suggest that that any government which attempts to override the judiciary in this way, well, this has uh, echoes of 1930s Germany, it seems to me, uh, and and many other examples of of sort of uh, you know totalitarian uh, situations in in past history. It goes beyond just not having a written constitution. There's no. I'm not aware of any any democratic country on the planet where where this type of power grab would be accepted. It's it is very fundamentally different from most uh, most other countries. It the, and it relates to an issue that perhaps looks familiar if you look back to the what's termed the English Civil War period, which was a conflict between Parliament and the King over who who has the power to run Leviathan. It's very, it's very similar to that. This is, there is an inherent conflict in democracy because democracy un, unrestricted is simply the tyranny of 51% over the 49. So most democracies um, realize that there must be something else, some check, some balance on what a government can do. Now, all through the West, these checks and balances have been under pressure and have been breaking down. You have the long march through the institutions by the by the left. So these institutions are captured by left-wing views. And here you see in Israel the right pushing back and saying, no, 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 it's democracy. The people want this. And, and what's the basis that you're denying the people the right to choose? And against this, there's the... There's the, the, the 
the limitation of saying, well, actually, there are absolute values here that, that, that essentially trump democracy. And if we ignore those, then we descend into ty tyranny. Um, and, and that conflict is what you're seeing wor working out here. It's a conflict we had in Britain uh, in the 17th century. It's a conflict they had in America in the, in the, in the 18th century and 19th to, in, some, in some degree. And it's a conflict now being played out in Israel in the 21st century. I think it has the potential to be um, as divisive, as deeply fracturing there as it has been in other countries at other times. Okay, thanks, David. Okay, Debbie, let's uh, let's move back to health issues and AstraZeneca. Yeah, I just want to uh, I just want to rewind people to 2017 to the days of Theresa May, um, if we dare go back there. But in January 2017, she unveiled plans for a modern industrial strategy fit for global Britain. And I've just segmented off a little bit of it there at the bottom. The UK is a great place to start and grow a business, home to some of the world's best companies. We have an international reputation for science. The development and manufacture of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine demonstrated the strong partnerships that exist between universities and businesses in the UK. This strength extends to sectors such as aerospace, the creative industries, financial services and emerging industries such as AI and fintech. So interesting uh, there, this strong relationship that we have with AstraZeneca. So what are AstraZeneca doing now? Because they're not doing very much with regards to COVID vaccines, we can see, thankfully. However, they're being very busy. So they're looking in other places in order to grow. So they made just shy of four billion dollars from sales of the COVID-19 vaccine in 2021, but sales have since more than halved, I wonder why, and were down 95% at the tail end of last year. So AstraZeneca have got to go into new business quickly. And as you can see there, um, at, at the bottom there, boss Pascal Sorio said, we plan to initiate more than 30 phase three trials this year of which 10 have the potential to deliver peak year sales over $1 billion. So that's a lot of money. So AstraZeneca, uh, they better be friends with Jeremy Hunt, hadn't they? Oh, talking of Jeremy Hunt and injections and vaccines, let's remind ourselves of the time that I caught Jeremy Hunt off the hop or on the hop during a Zoom um, chat. Let's see what he says about COVID-19 vaccine and serious adverse reactions. As we're drawing to a close, Iqbal, did you want to take another couple of questions and I can I'm happily talk about all of them together? Would that be helpful? Okay. That would be because we've got two colleagues who have got their hands up and I think it'll be only fair. But could I ask you both, Debbie and Andy, please try and be very short in your questions. It's first to Debbie. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for allowing me to ask a question. Um, Jeremy, I just wanted to ask because the MHRA obviously are in charge of patient safety when it comes to pharmacovigilance and the um, PA, uh, PEAG group at the Commission for Human Medicines. But according to the MHRA data, um, as I'm seeing today, as of today, there are over um, one and a half million serious adverse reactions and 2,000 uh, deaths. Now, I know we cannot attribute these 
to the vaccine and I appreciate that. However, without forensic investigations and without further investigation, we're never going to know. And as, as a nurse, I'm meeting people who are saying that they're reporting yellow cards to the MHRA, but they're not receiving any help or support back, either from their GPs or from the MHRA. So I just wondered what your thoughts were with regarding to a, an investigation on the serious adverse reactions that we're currently seeing. Thank you. Debbie's question, I, I want to take that away um, because I, um, I think it's something that my committee might be interested in looking at. I'll need to talk to my other members of my committee because we decide these things democratically. But I, um, when I was health secretary, I commissioned the University of Sheffield, Leeds and Manchester to do a report onto medication error. Um, and, you know, we found there were 8,000 deaths a year. And, um, you know, obviously we are very concerned about the uh, adverse reactions that we have from the COVID vaccines. Um, it's not for me to make a judgment as to the balance of risk, um, but I think we do need to fully understand the issues that you raise. Uh, but he went away and never got back to me. Um, and despite my emailing him three or four times, he just didn't get back to me. So we can see that uh, Jeremy Hunt isn't terribly interested in the serious adverse reactions, but he is very disappointed. And I think this, this next, these next couple of slides, I think may be a canary in the coal mine. I'm red flagging it because it's a story that's not being covered much by the media, but I think it's indicative of the UK being able to talk the talk but perhaps not walk the walk when it comes to life sciences. So in the next slide, you'll see that Jeremy Hunt's actually really disappointed because the UK has now lost out on a £320 million new AstraZeneca factory. Um, they've decided now to move from their original site, which was going to be Cheshire. They have got another um, site up there, so they were just going to blend the two. But because of tax issues, they've now decided that they're going to move. They're going to move to just outside Dublin. Now, at the bottom there, you can see AstraZeneca has warned the UK for some time not to take its life, sec uh, life sciences sector for granted. And clearly, they're very concerned that maybe the UK isn't the best place to invest. So if you just want to jump, yes, there, uh, jump on to see uh, who Pascal Sorio is. Let's remind ourselves that he is Sir Pascal Sorio. He was knighted by, I think he was, was he King Charles or was he Prince Charles? And he may even have been King Charles, I'm not quite sure. Um, and AstraZeneca is now blaming the UK's discouraging tax rate for the company's decision to build this pharmaceutical ingredients facility at the former Alexian campus in Dublin, rather than nearing its existing sites around Macclesfield. Now, I just want to remind people of the connections with AstraZeneca, because AstraZeneca are embedded, absolutely embedded within the Terracotta um, and with the king, now king, but was Prince Charles. And so we mustn't forget that AstraZeneca are one of the founding partners of Terracotta. And I'm just seeing this, like I say, as a canary in the coal mine, Things are not what they seem to be when it comes to life sciences. And uh, AstraZeneca certainly aren't going to be making Guinness in Dublin, I can assure you. 
Okay, so let's uh, move on to future health then, Debbie. Yeah, now I'd like to thank uh, Taylor very much for this. Uh, Mike, would you do me the favour of please reading it out because it's a little bit small on my screen. But it was an email that we received from Taylor with um, something he'd received in the post with regard to our future health. If you wouldn't mind reading it out. So it says, I received a letter recently from the NHS in partnership with an organisation called Our Future Health inviting members of the public to take part in the UK's largest ever research programme with up to 5 million volunteers to help detect and treat disease. Earlier, uh, I treat programmes such as this with suspicion, given what we've experienced in the last couple of years. The organisation has received a staggering amount of funding. If you do some digging on its website and receives funding from the pharmaceutical industry, I've attached a copy of the letter. Uh, I thought it might be of interest to you uh, if you are not already aware. I certainly was. And thank you very much indeed, Taylor, because this is, you know, come and have a wee test, come and have a blood test. So who is this future, our future health? So I decided to do exactly what Taylor said, because he'd flagged it up and they certainly are very interesting. And here you can see the NHS involvement. So NHS 75 Digital, how we invite people to join our future health research program. Apparently they email, uh, they might catch you if you're um, giving a pint of blood or if you're in your doctor's surgery, all sorts of ways, text apps, they can catch you all sorts of ways. So then if you go to their website and you can see it there on the right, they say that they're the UK's largest ever health research program to transform the prevention, detection and treatment of diseases. So as always, I wanted to know a little bit more about this organisation and I found a little video, very short. So let's have a look and see who they are. Today, millions of people in the UK spend many years of their later life in poor health. And too often, we treat diseases only when patients start showing symptoms. And this can be costly and less effective. Despite massive advances in modern medicine, diseases such as cancer, diabetes, heart disease and stroke continue to blight the lives of many people across our communities. Our Future Health is the UK's largest ever health research programme. It's designed to help researchers discover much more effective ways to prevent, detect and treat common diseases. We'll do this by building a community of 5 million volunteers over the age of 18 who will share information, provide blood samples and complete questionnaires. Volunteers will also be given the option to receive health feedback and take part in cutting-edge research studies. To help all kinds of people, we need every kind of person. Every individual has something unique to contribute. So we're welcoming volunteers from all backgrounds and communities right across the UK. But acting together now, we have the opportunity to help future generations live healthier lives for longer. Hmm. Do you feel special? Do you want to help future generations? So I went a bit deeper and I'm just going to show you and you're going to have to freeze the frame so that because I know that we're tight on time. But I'm just going to show you a few of the board of trustees. There's many, many more. So you've got um, Sir John Bell, who's Regis uh, Professor of Medicine at Oxford, who's also been involved with Wellcome, Gates Foundation, Genomics England. Doesn't that give you reassurance? And then you have Sally Osman, too. She's... Um, BBC, Sky, she was um, actually directly involved communications direct to the Queen. Um, then we've got others, Mary Callum, 25 years, UK government, serious organised crime, McKinsey, uh, the big four. 
uh, Adrian Hanna, Unilever, Sainsbury, Oxford Nano, GSK, GlaxoSmithKline, and Welcome. Uh, we've got Harpal Kumar, again, president of Grail. Grail was um, Bill Gates, uh, funded that with Jeff Bezos, McKinsey, Cancer Research, and Peter Chambray, Cancer Research, and AstraZeneca. So those are just a few of the board. And when you start seeing the amount of money, and I'm only going to be highlighting a little bit of it because really people should go on to their website and have a look at this enormous amount of money that's being invested into this this outfit, as I call them. So you can see there, um, I mean, there's, there's different references all over the place. But down at the bottom, I've just highlighted that our Future Health has announced 100 million new funding leading life sciences companies from leading life sciences companies. And you can see there that you've got Illumina, GlaxoSmithKline, AstraZeneca, Amgen, all the normal suspects. And they've recently published a tender for the processing, genotyping and storage of biological samples for up to 5 million participants, genotyping data processing services and genetic risk score services. So this is an enormous, huge organisation. Do you know who you're giving your data to? Because it's going everywhere and anywhere. So that was just to highlight that. So thank you very much. Taylor for that. Um, very quickly, I just want to mention that the COVID inquiry has just started. And even before it started, it's pretty much fallen uh, fallen at that first hurdle. The WHO have written, and this is an article in the Times, this is on page two of the Times, the WHO have snubbed the UK's COVID inquiry by refusing to submit a statement. Um, it's also being shrouded by secrecy, names being redacted, and the uh, bereaved families, I mean, they are really upset with the way that this inquiry is already being held. And I believe at the first session, there were even problems with audio where they people that were linking in on Zoom couldn't hear. So it's not going very well, the COVID inquiry, but I am going to keep a very close eye on it. Um, very quickly, just going to um, pharmacy news. Uh, it looks as though pharmacists are going to be receiving further mental health training. Um, I'm quite concerned, actually, that boots seem to be almost in as high regard as the BBC, the sort of treasure of the UK. But we seem to be expecting pharmacists now to be giving mental health problems, uh, mental health advice. And that's not knowing the patient's medical history. They would just give an assessment either online or on the spot. So very concerning. And we've got um, pharmacists are now saying they're not substitutes for GPs. They're not here to do the job that GPs do. Quite rightly, they're not. They don't have the patient's medical history. They won't know any uh, any of um, your previous illnesses or what your allergies are necessarily. And they're also saying that they're noticing that the whole credit squeeze is causing people now not to go in for prescriptions or even to ask pharmacists, what could I do without um, so that the, the squeeze is really hitting prescriptions. So just wanted to give, oh, and then we've got HRT as well. It's all started again. We've had these shortages before of HRT, but now, according to the I, women are facing HRT postcode lottery um, 
kind of if, if you're in the right postcode, you get HRT. And some people are sharing their HRT. They're buying it online. The MHRA, of course, are kicking off and saying that they're worried about where women are getting it. So this whole HRT shortage, again, is starting to resurface. OK, brilliant. Thank you, Debbie. Now, uh, I just want to move on to, uh, I suppose, China-related issues here. But uh, this was the BBC from uh, 2020. Huawei, why it's not, why it's being banned from the UK's 5G network. So uh, we're being told, we were being told at the time that this was a national security risk, uh, that uh, Huawei is snooping on every piece of uh, uh, data or voice calls and so on uh, on the uh, mobile phone networks and so on. So Huawei eventually was uh, banned, or at least Huawei equipment was banned from the, dom the domestic civilian 5G networks. Um, so I just want to uh, bring this on. This is a, the latest report from the Office of the Biometrics and Surveillance Camera Commissioner. Uh, this was released uh, today. Uh, the, use, uh, the report's called the use of overt surveillance camera systems in public spaces, places by police forces in England and Wales. Um, and uh, well, they are highlighting the fact uh, that with respect to internal CCTV, this is CCTV cameras in police stations and so on, uh, they asked the question, does your system have any cameras or equipment manufactured or supplied by surveillance companies outside the UK, UK about which there have been any security or ethical concerns? So uh, there were 40, there are 47 police forces in the UK. Uh, I think 31 of them responded. Um, and, uh, and so uh, 15 of them were using uh, Hikvision cameras, uh, five of them using uh, Dahua cameras, uh, two Honeywell, one Huawei, and uh, one neural for internal CCTV. But for CCTV cameras that are operated by the police uh, outside of police stations, um, it was uh, 10 of the respondents were using Hikvision. Well, you can see the numbers there for yourself. So the question is, uh, why is this a problem? Because, uh, of course, the story that's being told is that uh, Huawei and Hikvision and Honeywell and so on are hoovering up data that data is being sent back to China. Uh, and that's a very bad thing, according to uh, the mainstream press. But of course, nobody's questioning the scale of the surveillance that's being done uh, by the police and by the security services, by the government and so on in the UK for the purposes of, of government and police in the UK. So uh, related to this then uh, is the latest announcement on uh, um, satellites. Uh, and so I just want to bring on Skynet. Now, Skynet is the UK's defence a swarm of defense satellites. Uh, these are low Earth orbit satellites. They're operated by uh, Airbus. Uh, and Babcock has just been given uh, a 400 million pound contract uh, to run a, a sort of management center uh, for this. This is being uh, issued under the Skynet service delivery wrap contract. Um, so uh, Skynet operations center is going to deliver information to UK and allied forces around the world, enabling a battlefield information advantage anywhere, anytime. So the question is, what's this got to do with Huawei and 5G networks and so on? Well, look, here's, uh, let's just look at what uh, Ben Wallace said in 2020 on this. It's crucial we continue to push the frontiers of our de defense space ambitions, enhancing our military resilience uh, and strengthening our nation security. Uh, then Alex Chalk, who's a defense minister, said this yesterday, uh, the UK's next generation military satellite communication system will keep us at the forefront of this crucial domain, the critical domain, sorry, and the work under this contract will bolster our resilience for years to come. But here's the key thing. Uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was 2021, 
the UK bought up shares. Well, they bought up a company called OneWeb, uh, which is was basically in administration or in bankruptcy at the time, um, and uh, was offering uh, a similar service to Elon Musk's uh, low Earth uh, orbit satellites, mainly for uh, internet access. Alex Sharma at the time, who was the business secretary, said access to our own global fleet of satellites has the potential connect to connect people worldwide, providing fast UK-backed broadband from the Shetlands to the Sahara and from pole to pole. So what are we talking about here? We've got uh, surveillance on 5G networks. We've got surveillance through cameras. Apparently that data all going to China. Uh, then we've got uh, military satellite swarms. Uh, we've got uh, the UK government buying up a satellite company uh, in order to provide internet access. Is that what this is all about? Well, not really, because if we go back to Ben Wallace, uh, I think again in 2020, he said this, we will ensure that we embed dual use at the heart of our capability management processes, considering how we can share defense space capabilities and outputs uh, with other government departments, including the security and intelligence services, as well as potentially with commercial users. So when they bought OneWeb, it was with one eye on defense and the other eye on commercial civilian uh, applications. Uh, and so all this, David, I'm, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, but it seems to me that all this uh, furore over Huawei over the last couple of years being involved with the 5G networks, and now the furore today over uh, Huawei and other Chinese uh, companies being involved over police surveillance infrastructure is really missing the point because what we have here is a government and intelligence services and the police which are hoovering up absolutely bulk, huge quantities of bulk data for their use um, and, and through a dual use system where we think we're using something which is purely for civilian use, but in fact is military in purpose. Yes, and, and although the, there's a huge discrepancy in the volume of information that our government is collecting compared to uh, information that another government, for example, the Chinese, might be collecting on us. Um, the core difference here is it's for a different purpose. The Chinese are presumably trying to assess the threat, military, industrial, and and diplomatic that they might face uh, to whatever plans they have from Britain, right? But our government's watching us. And it's very striking that although our government is the greater threat to our individual liberty, we stand about as much chance of finding out exactly what the Chinese are doing with our data as we find out as we stand of finding out what our own democratic, democratically controlled and very enlightened government are doing with the data. Uh, there, there is no control. There is no openness. There is only uh, kind of the pretense that this exists. Yes, and, and just to end this segment, again, this uh, came up on the, uh, to my attention just before we came on the news, so we've got new, no graphic for this, but uh, as part of the NATO Defence Minister's meeting, uh, 18 European countries, including the UK, have signed a joint letter of intent to explore and develop a framework for improved surveillance from space through multinational cooperation and sharing of national space-based capabilities. So the, the level of surveillance is just going through the roof. 
Now, uh, we're absolutely out of time, so we're just going to end on this. I've got two articles from the Mail here, and the theme is fear. And really, uh, we've seen these types of headlines before, but I just uh, thought they were quite incredible. Uh, bird flu may mutate to kill more than 50% of humans who catch it as a result of unprecedented outbreak sweeping mammals, experts fear. Uh, that was the first uh, fear headline yesterday. Uh, and the second one that I saw on the mail yesterday was one of the world's deadliest diseases kills nine in Equatorial Guinea. Fresh outbreak fears for incurable Marburg pathogen with up to 90% mortality rate. Um, so we've got to be fearful of that as well, David. Uh, but that leads us into what? Our closing song here, we've had songs many times from Brad's Christmas, five times August. Uh, we've got another Brad here from America, uh, Brad Borsch. And uh, he's also providing some wonderful music, which uh, gets to the heart of the matter in terms of the liberties we're losing uh, and uh, what it means to uh, stand up for them and fight back. Let's
Right, brilliant, David. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks to David and Debbie for joining us today. We're absolutely out of time. So we'll be back in a few minutes uh, on the members live stream. If you are uh, a member, you can watch uh, some extra, but otherwise we'll be back 1 p.m. as usual on Friday. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.